0: Thank you to Alan and the team. One of the challenges that COVID posed for us was, particularly for Matt and myself and others who preach regularly here at Wodonga, was that we had to learn to speak to a camera. And those first few weeks, I remember just how awkward it was because you tended to want to default to speak to the congregation who were not here. In fact, that first week, I set some puppets up just to give me someone to preach to. Today, we're in that funny sort of transition stage because our team have just vacated the stage. They've all gone. And they're down here. I'm not sure who to look at anymore. Do I look at you guys or do I look at you guys? And probably I need to look here from time to time, otherwise I'm going to get totally bamboozled. And we'll be in all sorts of trouble, but we'll survive. So forgive us if there's a few little glitches, even in this part of our service. There were none in the music, so really fantastic work, well done. Many, many years ago, I happened to be doing uh, some teaching experience down in Gippsland. I was staying with my auntie and uncle down it, in a little place called Heath Hill, and we were sitting around the kitchen table, the three of us, talking about their experience. As families growing up and how meals were undertaken, my auntie came from a home with just two siblings and i 'm kind of guessing it was a relatively um, moderate sort of a home you know meal times would have been well organized and well ordered and so she was in the habit of eating in quite a, a moderate way a, a paced way let's say. My uncle, by contrast came from a family of boys and what used to happen in that space was as soon as you'd finished your meal any food on anyone else's plate was fair game and so they all learnt to eat uh, as fast as they could because there was the opportunity if you finished yours you could get someone else's and in marriage, in that first couple of months of marriage they said it was really strange because my auntie was sitting at the table wondering why my uncle had to eat so fast and my uncle was sitting at the table wondering why my auntie was eating so slowly And it was the first experience that I had of what we now describe as family of origin, or family of origin issues, if you like, the way that we have been raised uh, impacting the way that we behave in life. And throughout January, I'd like to spend a little bit of time reflecting on the early years of Jesus. Uh, the part of Jesus' life that we rarely spend much time thinking about and today spend some time thinking about his family of origin and how that would have shaped him and would have inevitably shaped him as he prepared for ministry at around the age of 30. Now, to be fair, there's not that much data in the New Testament for us to work with. As is the case with supply and demand, however... Uh, There was plenty of demand and an absence of supply and some people through those early years did provide additional information, some of it which is fantastic but totally useless. For example, uh, somebody made the effort to write what is known as the Gospel of the Infancy of Jesus. You've probably not read that one, you won't find it in your Bible because it was recognised as being fanciful But in the Gospel of the Infancy of Jesus, it is proposed that, amongst other things, Jesus spoke from the cradle, announcing his divinity to his mother. You can imagine the shock Mary would have got in that space. It also claims that a demon-possessed child was cured by contact with Jesus' swaddling clothes, while other sick folk were healed by Jesus' bathwater. Punches up some interesting images, doesn't it? As Mary tossed the bathwater out the door, there might have been a crowd of of lepers or others ready to to receive healing. Uh, Another report in this same um, apocryphal gospel says that during a playground encounter with little Judas, who, it might be noted, was already possessed by Satan and manifest that possession as a biter, tried to bite Jesus unsuccessfully And so instead he slapped Jesus on the very spot where Jesus would one day be pierced by a spear. So as you can see it's much safer for us to stick to what the Scriptures do contain, mindful of the fact that just because the authors of the Gospels didn't include a lot of this information about the early phase of Jesus life, they didn't see it as necessary for their purposes, it doesn't mean that it's not important. And so we're going to reflect for a few moments today and then again next week and over the next few weeks on some of the events in that early stage of Jesus' life. And there's perhaps five things we could say by summary. The first one here on the screen is this, and it reminds us as we read the Scriptures that Jesus came from a poor family. Now there's nothing unusual about this because in these times many people, came from poor families and the law the the law of Moses acknowledged this and so for example as we had in our reading when it was time for Jesus to be taken to the temple for dedication the law prescribed that a lamb should be offered as the sacrifice but if you couldn't afford a lamb then two small pigeons or two small doves which was in fact the offering that Joseph and Mary made which is indicative probably of their economic sense. Given our understanding of the cultural context it's also fairly safe to assume that they like many other families of the day probably lived with the constant threat of hunger They may have experienced times where income was limited according to the seasons, according to droughts or perhaps too much rain, whatever. In these times, uh, particularly in Jesus' time, there was the ever-present concern that families would have of what will happen to us if the primary breadwinner fell ill, became incapacitated or died. There was no safety network of social security in those days. We don't know, of course, Whether this was the experience of Jesus' family, nor can we say definitively that it was not. What we can say is that Jesus did grow up in a context where his every woman desire were not met, in contrast perhaps to the manner in which we might approach this topic today ourselves. And the fact that God chose to send his own son. Into the home of a poor family rather than one privileged by wealth is rather interesting isn't it? Though his family were poor they were devout and this suggests that the priorities that we often set in the West and I speak very broadly in this sense the priorities that we set around parenting where we believe that's in our the best interests of our children to provide everything every possible thing that they could desire might not actually be the best for them. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 16, uh, the author says, how much better to get wisdom than gold, to choose understanding rather than silver, suggesting for the author of Proverbs, there's a different priority to that which so often captures us. God intentionally placed his son in a home that was rich in righteousness, if not resources, and there might well be a lesson in that for us. And that kind of naturally leads us to the second observation and that is this jesus came from a family that was deeply religious they were a very devout family we know from earlier in the the scriptures that joseph was described as a righteous man and that mary had found favor with god god's grace was upon her and we know from the scriptures that they were diligent in observing the law prior to and after the birth of Jesus. But here's an interesting observation. Um, despite this very dramatic experience that they'd had, and remember, they'd had a very dramatic experience, a very dramatic spiritual encounter, they never presumed on God. The temptation for some might be in that space if an angel appeared to us. Um, Just imagine yourself in this situation. If an angel appeared to you and spoke to you and gave you a message, the temptation is at least there for us to suddenly assume an air of spiritual superiority and say, well, you know, God spoke directly to me. And so perhaps lord it over others or have some air of superiority over others. But we don't see that in Joseph or Mary You might have had the unfortunate experience of meeting people who've perhaps been a little like that, some kind of sense of superiority after a God moment that they experience. It's not necessarily pleasant to watch and it's not godly. They say that familiarity breeds contempt but this certainly was not a charge that could be leveled at Jesus' family, at Mary and Joseph. They were humble even in that space. They were gracious to others, even in that space. And Jesus grew up in a context, a family that was very humble in the manner in which they approached God. It's tempting perhaps to park that thought right there, but there's one personal and perhaps risky application that's worth making in this space. And so I offer it in the absence of a congregation with only a handful of people here to say this to. Uh, we need to reflect sometimes on how we actually approach God ourselves. How do we approach God when it comes to worship? Let me describe a typical Sunday morning. Uh, it's busy, it's confusing. The kids are laid out of bed or very early out of bed and so the family's tired getting them dressed, getting them breakfast getting them into the car. Just make it to church and it's already two minutes past ten. Goodness me, I'm going to have to sit up the back, check them in. It's confusing, it's, uh, it's busy, it's overwhelming and it's difficult for us in that space to prepare ourselves properly when we come in. And then even as we do come in, we're greeting this one and we're greeting that one and it's lovely and appropriate to enjoy that fellowship. But how do we do it to properly prepare to meet with God in that space of corporate worship? I wonder whether Aaron and Moses talked about the football when they were going into the tent of meeting, possibly not. And yet we who have direct access to God 24 seven are not restricted to meeting with God in a particular place or time, can be inclined to approach worship together, one of the most important corporate activities of the church, as though it's just something we do every day. And there might well be times when we approach the worship of God with such a laissez-faire attitude that God must ask the question, are you serious in this space? Something to think about and something to think about as we move forward. As we do move forward, let's reflect a little more on Jesus' family though. The third reflection i would bring with you today is this. Jesus' family was a bustling family. I don't know whether you ever kind of would have thought about this. But we need to understand some of the context. Because we understand that Jesus was the eldest in the family. Mary was a virgin when he was conceived. We know that he didn't have older brothers or older sisters. But we do know from the Scriptures that... Joseph and Mary went on to have other children. In Matthew chapter 13 verse 55, for example, Matthew tells us that Jesus had four brothers and names them and then in verse 66, sorry, 56, at least two and possibly more sisters. As the eldest in the family, Jesus inherited some responsibilities according to his culture, responsibilities that would have shaped him as the eldest as he grew up. The firstborn male, particularly in a family, was expected to be the or expected to be the recipient of the family inheritance but the firstborn male also had to act in such a manner as though he was the second father in the family, the next father in line so to speak. And as you think about it, as Jesus was a member of a family of seven, I don't know what your context was like as you grew up but living with brothers and sisters, you learn a lot of stuff, don't you? Jesus had to learn to share, to be tolerant of the nuances and annoyances of others, to put up with jealousies and the jostling for position and all that goes with living with other people. And then we come to Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 where it says, we have a high priest in Jesus who was tested or tempted in every way just as we are. And when we think about that we probably default to thinking about the big things, you know, like he was tempted to steal or tempted to lie or tempted by sexual sin or whatever it might be. But Jesus also faced the stuff of life that can grind our gears too. Brothers who were taking up more than their fair share of room in the bed or at the table or ate more than they should have and sisters who um, probably this didn't happen but sisters who stayed in the bathroom longer than was felt necessary. Um, People in the household who played with his toys and broke stuff and in that space too Jesus didn't sin. That's significant, isn't it? Because it's the everyday stuff that sometimes can be the hardest for us to manage. Jesus also came from a working family. Part of his family of origin was a family that worked. As the firstborn son, Jesus was expected to follow in the trade of his father Joseph, who we know was a carpenter probably more accurate to say Joseph was a builder because in those days there was work with timber but most significantly work with stone and we assume from this that Jesus worked with Joseph and was expected to work with Joseph That Jesus would have had to work hard, he would have had to work with his hands, he would have had to learn to be disciplined in his work, he would have spent long days at work, he would have had to work in all sorts of weather, he had to work probably for people who might have been impatient or abusive or ungracious just like we need to sometime. Not me personally, I don't have that kind of context, Uh, everyone's happy here Uh, but he had to develop skill and patience and an eye for detail curiously working with the very materials that he had created in the first place and his character would have been shaped and developed as his identity as the Messiah was shaped through this time. And Jesus was also from a family that was acquainted with grief. We know from the scriptures too that his family had to escape the murderous intentions of Herod and so became refugees for a time in Egypt we don't often reflect on that and the terrible trauma that must have been associated with that trauma that Jesus even as an infant may have uh, understood or had communicated to him. In the silence of the Gospels Joseph disappears off the scene sometime after the birth of Jesus other siblings. We have no idea of the timing, we have no idea of the circumstances but we can assume relatively safely that Jesus had to take on the role of head of the family for some period of time. And in that space, in that grief and loss that we presume took place, Jesus would have experienced the full gamut of human emotion. We see it really clearly, of course, when Jesus' friend Lazarus passed away, that deep emotional grief that resonates so much with the grief that we experience in those same places Uh, if we've lost someone or uh, someone has gone from us. So what does all this mean? Let's um, just reflect briefly on a couple of applications. The obvious application, and I've kind of already alluded to this, is to say we have a high priest in Jesus who is able to sympathise with our weaknesses because he experienced everything that we have experienced And it was important from the point of view of Jesus who came to be the saviour for humanity to be able to identify with those that he came to bring salvation to that's a that's an obvious application let's leave that one you've probably also heard applications like this that Jesus was sent to a home where there was a godly mother and a godly father who God knew would nurture him in his infancy and so we could talk about the importance of parents and the home environment and that should never be understated nor undersold. Good application too if we wanted to go there but I'm going to park that one as well because as I was reflecting on this through this week something else struck me and it's perhaps something that I've not reflected on enough over the years and it's this. Jesus lived for 30 years in the very ordinariness of family and community life, life that we might be at some level to be tempted to see as drudgery or mundane, life that doesn't seem to have a lot to do with serving God or breaking ground for the kingdom but life which is sanctified by Jesus because that was where he lived as well. This life that we go on with day by day is ordained by God as good because that's the life that Jesus experienced as well when he grew up. Jesus grew up in a home where a meal had to be prepared every night, where dishes had to be done, where somebody had to get up each day and go to work, where somebody had to do the laundry. Jesus lived in the ordinary and by living in the ordinary actually says the ordinary is special too. The ordinary can be holy or set apart for God as well. And sometimes we might be tempted to look at the ordinary or reflect on our experience of the mundane and undervalue it in terms of its importance for the kingdom of God. We might in fact falsely believe that what I need to do is go on some kind of hero's journey and become a missionary to the, the people of, oh, pick a country, Senegal or somewhere like that, some kind of spiritual hero and and, uh, and do that. The reality though is that Jesus spent 30 years of his life in this very ordinary space and that tells us something of the value that God puts on the day-to-day experience of life. Have you ever, for instance, considered how mowing the lawn or drying the dishes or hanging out the washing might actually be an activity ordained as good by God? 1 Corinthians 10:31 Paul's uh, talking to the Corinthian church who had a few issues And he said to them there, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. He was taking issue with them and saying to them, no matter what you do, whatever you consider doing through your day, do it for the glory of God. And if these ordinary things that are so much part of our life were not able to be used by God, then Jesus would have come into the world, avoided all that stuff, but he didn't. And in fact, by living in that place, he affirms these activities as activities that can be undertaken for the glory of God. There's a, a really well-known quotation from the book of Jeremiah that I think is worth referring to at this point. It's not the one that uh, many people like to pull out. You know, I know the plans I have for you and so on. It's actually verse 5, not verse 11. Uh, in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 5, God's Spoke these words to the people who were in exile in Babylon he said to them build houses and settle down plant gardens and eat what they produce marry and have sons and daughters find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters increase in number there do not decrease also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you in exile pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers you will prosper. You see, God's instruction to the exiles who were wrestling with their new situation, who were looking for some kind of supernatural relief was this. Knuckle down and live life in the ordinary because that's where God will be found. I've told uh, this story, I think, to some folks here Um, Some years ago we as a church decided to join in with the Clean Up Australia Day campaign which meant we cancelled our service on Sunday morning and went out and picked up rubbish. Uh, We filled up two trailers full of rubbish. And rather curiously one of the members of our congregation who did not join us in doing that took me to task with this because he said to me words to this effect, David it was wrong to do that on Sunday morning because Sunday is the Lord's Day. And uh, as graciously as I could, and with a little bit of um, uh, what's the word, a little bit of not so much sarcasm, but a little bit of nuance, I said to him, Well, that's rather interesting because I was under the impression that every day was the Lord's day. And the point is this every day has the potential to be a day in which we see the activity of God. Every activity that we do has the potential to be an activity inhabited. and used by the Spirit of God for his purposes. And so let me encourage you this week, no matter what you do, do everything for the glory of God because Jesus lived in that space and Jesus lives with us in that space by his Spirit today. Next week, we're going to continue reflecting on the life of Jesus in these early years. We'll have a look at the passage, a troubling passage where Jesus is in the temple and then kind of disappears off the radar from his parents for a bit of time. And over these next few weeks, continue that pattern. But let's pray. Father, we want to thank you again for what we do know about the early life of our Lord Jesus. And although there's not much data there in the Gospels and we are careful not to go beyond that data, we would pray, Lord, that um, you would just help us to be reminded that the very ordinary things that we uh, uh, deal with day by day are ordained as good by you and you lived in that space. Father we're reminded that Zechariah chapter 4 10 says don't despise the day of small beginnings as the temple was being rebuilt as a rubber bull was going about that business even small things are important and today we want to acknowledge again that you exist in those places. So help us Father to rethink perhaps some of those things that we have considered mundane or ordinary or dreary or doleful. Help us to see that you are in those places too. Help us to see that the things that we do with our hands, the time that we spend through the week, the activities that we're engaged in are ordained by you as opportunities for us to serve. Help us to have spiritual eyes to see where you are at work in those places for we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.